0: Uh, This morning you get to hear From a great guy, a really great guy. Uh, (laughs) Ryan is with us, uh, Ryan Patterson. And uh, Ryan's uh, a longtime Bay Area native, uh, just been here a long time, uh, serving in ministry. Right now he's leading a home church, and he also trains church planners and works with church planners a lot. But but the biggest connection and the connection I love about him the most is he comes here on Wednesday mornings and sits and prays with a bunch of other pastors. Uh, from the Bay Area. So he's been doing that for about a year, and it's just been a joy to, to get to know him in that in that light. And we just get to sit and pray for each other and pray for our ministries, pray for the city of San Jose, and everything that God is doing. Uh, so would you help me in welcoming Orion? Morning, everybody. It's good to see you and good to be with you. Uh, this is this is my backyard. I grew up uh, in Willow Glen at Lincoln and Kirtner. I went to Pioneer High School over here. Um, and I uh, grew up going to South Hills Community Church. Um, and uh, this, is, this is my clan, uh, my wife Rebecca, um, Ashlyn on the far right, Addie, Eli, and Caleb. And we've got a uh, number five on the way right now. Uh, our plan was for three, and God's plan was for five. So that's exciting, I think. Um, no, it'll, it'll be good when I get there. Uh, it'll be good when I get there. I keep telling myself that. Um, anyways, no, it'll be great. Um, just really uh, glad to be with you guys. I know that um, you know. Our, I live right here at Foxworthy in Almaden, um, and our house church meets in my home there. And we have two other churches, uh, one in Will Glen, one in Campbell. And uh, just love the local church, love that uh, you guys are here, Um, there's some familiar faces, um, there's new faces, and uh, it's great to be with you. And my, my hope and prayer for us this morning is that we'd be able to just kind of settle in and enjoy some words from a very wise sage Um, The Apostle John. And uh, so if you would uh, open up your Bibles to John chapter 6, uh, verse 60, or if you're grabbing the Bible in the chair in front of you, it's page uh, 616, right at the top in the middle right um, is where we'll start. Um, And uh, let's pray before we start, shall we? Let's pray. Jesus, I'm just aware that you are always with us. And that uh, you are offering yourself, your love, your power, your presence to us as we are here this morning. We're grateful for examples in the faith like John and uh, his life and his words um, that help us to know um, what it means to live with you in our life. We pray this morning that um, you would take the, the tension... Um, and the the desperation that we feel at times in our lives and turn it into dependence upon you. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. One of the reasons that uh, I love um, the Gospel of John is because of John's story himself. And uh, John was one of the first followers of Jesus. He got the privilege of living life with Jesus in the flesh for three years, um, watching him live and eat and sleep. And... uh, suffer and um celebrate and just go through the gamut of life experience. Um, but then even more valuable to me is the fact that once Jesus died and rose from the dead and went back to heaven, um, John lived life in the spirit for decades. Um, and he really is an old sage. Uh, Christian tradition says that he wrote this when he was eighty or ninety years old. Um, and so for me and for uh all of us, if you have you know, a sage in your life, uh, whether it was a family member, a grandparent, um, uh, somebody in the church, uh, you know the warmth and the comfort it is to meet with that sage. Somebody who has lived through a lot of life, knows the ups and downs, isn't um, youthful and idealistic, but is hopeful and is confident of love and of truth. And that's the kind of man that we get to sit with this morning when we read the Gospel of John. Um, One of my favorite stories from Christian tradition about John is that, you know, we we hear stories that he was tortured, um, that he was exiled um, to the island of Patmos, um, but then in later life, uh, he was able to be with the church, but he could no longer walk. Um, It required that men from the church would come and carry him on a mat, and he requested to be set at the front of the church, um, to be as close as he could to um, the songs and to the reading of the words so he could still hear it. And that picture of a man who is faithful until the end, um, that despite um, physical limitations, despite um, years of wear and tear, um, still came with a whimsical love for Jesus to be present with his community is of great encouragement. Um, and so he tells us a story this morning, um, kind of in his story, he's building up a picture of who Jesus is. And he has Jesus making these amazing declarations, um, that are, are, that are wise and compelling. And you can think of all the different kind of teachers and trainers and and, and uh, people in our culture that people latch on to, the different podcasts that people listen to, the different YouTube channels that people watch. They, they gather a following, and there's lots of likes, and there's lots of follows, um, and people are interested in what they have to say. And that's kind of where we're at in the story with Jesus, is that he is getting lots of likes, he's getting lots of follows, and people are going along with him for the ride. Um, but then Jesus starts to say really challenging things. And this is the point at which all of us will face in our life, is that we will hit moments where there is tension, and there is desperation, and there is wonder, and there is doubt about what does it mean to really follow Jesus. And, and in this moment, we're going to set aside the specifics of what he's teaching about, because it's a little bit uh, it's, it's complicated. He says that he's the bread of life, and he says that you need to eat my bread, eat my flesh, and drink my blood to follow me. And to a good Jew, this was a tremendously difficult thing to understand. And I think that all of us can relate that there are questions, whether they're theological or philosophical. I mean, the basic one for me is just, when I look at the pain that happens in people's lives, as we shepherd and pastor and live life with people, the addictions that they struggle with, the abuse that they've suffered, um, the chronic addiction... To whatever is holding on to them. The, the tension of that teaching that God is good and powerful and present, and yet there is such suffering in the world, is a real tension. Now, I can point to the book on the shelf and I can pull the doctrine off that gives you a technical explanation for that. But in that moment of tension, in that real life, the answer is more relational than it is technical. And that is where Jesus lives with his followers and his people. And so in this moment of tension, when he's putting something in front of them that is too hard for them to understand or believe or live, I want to pay attention to how he responds to them and what he does, because I think that how he responds to them is how he responds to us. So he says this difficult teaching, and in verse 60, this is what it says. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? I love that he walks them up right to what is hard. Because if you can imagine, um, he teaches something difficult, and I, I'm sure you guys never do this to Dave or Ben, but you know they're there on Sunday morning, and you can imagine someone who might. They say something that's hard or difficult, and then you might, not you, but someone else, walks off into the corner and afterwards is talking with a friend about, was that right? Is that how it should work? Is that—is that really what how life is? I'm sure you've never done it, but you've seen other people in the room, and so that's okay. Um, but Jesus, walk it would be like him walking off the stage and walking up to your little group and say, tell me what offends you about that. And I like that he expects, and that John, as a seasoned follower of Jesus, expects that there are going to be hard moments, hard moments to keep following him. It is no surprise that it's hard to follow Jesus. And there are some beautiful pictures of the different ways that Jesus walks people up right to the edge of their hesitations and their doubts and their tensions, and invites them into relationship with him in the midst of that tension. Two of those stories for me um, come from the Gospel of Mark. um, And and it just shows that Jesus is not surprised by the fact that we have this tension, that we have these hesitations inside. There's this one story of a young man who has it all together. He he he's rich, he's well dressed, he's religious, he goes he essentially goes to church every Sunday, he goes to the synagogue, and he knows the law, he knows the teachings of God. And he's been following them. And he goes to Jesus. And you can kind of imagine this where you just want some affirmation. You just want kind of an attaboy or a good job. And he walks up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what else do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What else do I need to do? This, this This is a pregnant question because he's saying, I've done everything, right? That's what his question is. There's nothing else that I need to do. It's veiled a little bit in the pretense of saying, there's nothing else, right? Um, And Jesus, his response, the scripture says, that Jesus looked at the young man and he loved him. And he loved him. He loved him too much to get away with that illusion of his physical having it all together. To not deal with the reality of something inside of him that was eating away at his life. That was killing him from the inside out. Jesus loved him, walked him right up to his hesitations and doubts, and said, You need to sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And the scriptures say that the man was saddened, he was darkened, he was shocked because he had great wealth. And he walked away. He walked away. There was this pivotal moment where he thought that he had it all together. And he was looking for confirmation from Jesus. And Jesus says, I want more of you than just your physical, getting it together discipline. I want your heart. I want your heart. But you, you love money more than you love me. And I don't know what that rich young ruler, the way that he loved money. I mean, I know what money means to me. I know it means security. I know it means comfort. I know it means that I feel like I have it all together. Um, how desperate does it feel when you don't have the money you need to pay your bills? I mean, it, is, it feels like your life is out of control. Um, so there's many different meanings for money. And I think that story is left in the scripture open to let us all kind of pause and wonder, how, how do I love money more than Jesus? But this is who Jesus is. He walks us right up to these doubts, right into these tensions, because he wants to offer us more than just having it together. The other story of another pivotal moment from Mark is of a woman who suffered for 12 years from bleeding. she'd been grinding it out, trying to find a solution or an answer. Mark says that she suffered at the hands of doctors. She tried to find as many solution that she possibly can. I'm sure that there's many of us that live with physical tension in our life. Whether it's illness, or like I said, paying the bills. Um, whether it's a, 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 a pattern of behavior that we can't get away from. And we just would love relief from that. And we've spent years, years trying to get away from it. Trying to solve the problem. I, I, I have friends that, you know, they're wrestling through their, the way they handle their finances. And year after year, they just have this sense of, we can't get ahead of it. For some reason, we can't get ahead of it. And there's something more to it than just the physical issue, but that's what we're focused on, right? And this, this woman's been bleeding, and she believes that Jesus will heal her. And so she presses through the crowd. She gets to his garment, grabs his cloak, and, and through her faith, Jesus heals her physically. And you can imagine the crowd is is all pressed around to the point where when Jesus asked the disciples, who touched me, they kind of laugh at him and are like, everyone's touching you, Jesus. There's a crowd. What do you mean? So this woman had grabbed the cloak, been healed and let go and drifted back into the crowd because she'd gotten the physical healing that she was looking for. But Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't want to leave her at that point. He wanted to walk her into the tension of the moment. And the tension of the moment is this, is that she'd been a social pariah for 12 years. She'd been unclean. She'd been pushed aside. the side. Her family, her neighbors would have avoided her. They would have crossed to the other side of the street to walk past her. And so the fact that she was physically healed wasn't enough for Jesus. So he calls out, who touched me again? And I love the picture that the scriptures have of the woman. It says that she came in fear and trembling. And isn't that the description of a pivotal moment, of a moment of tension or hesitation for us, where you're worried? I mean, I just imagine, I, I'm totally afraid of heights. It's ridiculous. And like if I look at a kite high in the air, my knees start to shake. It's, it's stupid. I don't know why. It just happens. But that's what I imagine. I just imagine that, do you know that moment that you feel called out? You, whether it's in a group or you realize, man, that person is like talking to me and I, don't, I didn't even realize, like they don't know it, but that's what's happening. And then can you imagine that that person is Jesus and knows that he's talking to you and he's like, hey, come up here right now. I mean, what if I did that to you right now? Hey, if this is hitting home, come up right here, right now. That, you, you would walk up with shaken knees. This is the Jesus that loves us too much to leave us in the tension. And to just dismiss kind of the superficial top of our problems. But because he wants all of us. He wants us to experience eternal life now. Completely. And this is what, what, uh, this is what John is affirming. As he goes on in his teaching. Jesus is addressing both what he said before. That we're not going to totally get into. But into the, the, just the essence of what he offers. So listen to this. He says, then what if I were, if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And Jesus always makes these claims. Because people ask, are you really the Son of God? Can you really be saying what you're doing? And he's like, what if I just went up to heaven right now? Would you believe now? And there's this wonderful parable that he tells at one point about a man who dies and, and goes, um, crosses over to the other side. And he wants Moses to go back and tell his family, God is real. God is real, you should listen to him. And in the, in the, the fable, Moses says, would, would they even believe somebody that had come back to life? Because we, we know, we know that tension. Jesus rose from the dead. It's, it's, I, I believe wholeheartedly there is plenty of evidence that it is a historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. If you take some time to investigate it, I think it's there. I think it's more than there. And yet, we don't believe it. We don't believe it. I spent time in India uh, visiting churches that we support there. We're a house church network, and we have a few churches here in the Bay Area, a few churches in Iowa, and we support a whole bunch of churches in India. And I'm visiting with this church, and the pastor is telling the story of how he came to faith. And this is his story. His story was that he was a Muslim. And that he had been, uh, he had a, uh, an arranged marriage to a woman who was sick. And he was trying to get out of that marriage because she was sick. That woman, his wife, is sitting next to her. And so he says, now I want to, tell you to her to tell you her story. And she says, I was so sick that I died. And my family came and brought the local uh, pastor to pray for me. And I was given a second life. I am talking to a woman who is not telling telling me some metaphor about how Jesus gave her a second life. She is talking about practically, physically, he gave me a second life. And the pastor said, in that moment, I knew that Jesus was real. And so I gave my life to him and I began to follow him. And now he hosts a church of 30 or 40 people in his home with his wife. And I got to tell you, I struggle with believing the words that she said. I think there's great historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. I, I think it's trustworthy and good. But I, when I look a woman in the face and she tells me that she came back to life, I, I still wrestle with that today. So I know that these things are hard. I know that they're hard to get in your heart to believe that that's true. Because if that's true, then what about me? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm minorly selfish. Okay, I'm really selfish Um, because what about me? What does this mean for me? Um, Jesus understands that these things are hard. He understands that even when the miraculous happens, we're able to dismiss it or question it. And so really what he's asking for is, is a testing over time. He's saying, pay attention to my words, pay attention to my life. This is what he says. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Let's focus on those words. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. They're physical and spiritual. Think about the stories of the rich young ruler and the bleeding woman. The rich young ruler looks like he has it together physically, but he's dying on the inside. The bleeding woman looks like she doesn't have it together at all and gets that physical healing, but needs something more, needs to be restored to relationship. And so Jesus says, Daughter, your faith has healed you in front of the whole crowd so that her family and her friends and her neighbors can all know she is clean. She's welcomed back into the relationship with them, but more powerful than anything else, Jesus, God Himself, calls her daughter. Says that He loves her and that He owns her as His own. His words are spirit and life, and I think we tend to split those things apart, and we tend to look for one answer or the other. We want God to either solve our problems by healing us, fixing us, training us, making our bank accounts work. Or we, we say, you know what, we push all that stuff aside and say, oh, that's worldly and fleshly and I'm just going to push it away and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to troop on. And I'm going to have a positive attitude because I'm changed. And I think that when we see that Jesus is both man and God in flesh in one, it's intertwined. And so those physical moments of tension, those existential moments of depression and, and tension on the inside are really moments for our whole world to be twisted together and healed by Jesus. And I think it's over time. I think it's with patience. And John, a man who walked with Jesus for three years, who walked with Jesus for decades in the Spirit afterwards, is saying that Jesus knows that when there's a crowd around him, there's many of those people in the crowd who aren't going to follow him forever. That there are going to be these hard moments, these pivotal moments, where we decide who is it that we're going to depend on. Where am I going to place my trust? I noticed in the bulletin this morning that the the little kids, their story today is a story of the four soils. And I love this story because I think it's a story that each one of us can reflect on time and time again. The simple story is this, that what Jesus offers us The life that he offers us is like a seed. And our hearts are like the soils. And there's four soils. There's one that's hard, and so the seed bounces off. And the birds can snatch it away. And that's our heart is hard to him. The second soil is one that has rocks. And so when when the seed lands, it's able to start growing. But the sun and the heat and the pressure and tension of life, there's not enough roots and so the plant withers and dies. I wonder about the ways that we, uh, the things that we accept in our life the hurt, the pain, the preconditions that cause us to not let our roots go deep. And so when the pressures and tensions of life come, it burns us up. The third soil is the one where it lands and it, and it, it grows quickly, and there's a joy and there's an excitement. And then it says that the thorns choke it out. The cares and the the loves of this world choke it out. I I think specifically of the students that went to Wildwood this last week. um, Many of us have had this experience where you get space from your ordinary life, even if it's just for the weekend or for the Sunday morning. But man, for a whole week in the mountains with space and time And loving people around you, pointing you to Jesus? How easy is it in that moment where you have that space to have something take root quickly and grow up with excitement? But then, wham! You come back into your house and your mom asks you to clean your room and your dad says that you need to go do this tomorrow and they're going to make you hang out with them on 4th of July when you want to be with your friends. And... Oh, man. Suddenly... Suddenly that that life that Jesus was offering seems really tense, really harsh. And will that get choked out? The last picture is the forest soil that's good, that's, that's soft, and that receives Jesus and his way of life. And it takes root deeply, and it grows up in order to bear fruit. I don't think that that story is one where you get to like just give yourself a pass and be like, "I've been going to church long enough. I'm the good soil," you know. I think, I think it's the condition of our heart when Jesus draws us into these moments. You might be the rich young ruler who's got it together, and for all intensive purposes, it looks like on the outside you've got the good soil. But Jesus wants to peel back a little bit of a layer and says you love money a lot. Is it possible that money is choking out what is possible for me in your life? Is it possible that money is preventing you from getting really deep roots and bearing more fruit? Is it possible that your heart is so hard about money that you're willing to give uh, time and you're willing to show up to church on Sunday But man, when it comes to money, that is yours and it just bounces right off. Are you the woman that is suffering a physical um, or practical situation that you've been enduring for a long period of time? And so, is your heart getting harder and harder? That when you come and spend time in the church, you meet with people in the church, you go to prayer... And it is dry as a bone, and you're wondering, what is going on? What is going on? I don't think that Jesus is afraid of those moments, and I don't think that he looks on them with guilt or shame towards you. I think he looks on you like he did the rich young ruler. I think he loves you. I think he loves you and says, let's take a look at what's under the hood. Because I want to offer you spirit and life. And here's what I know about this, is that John, his kind of summary statement about the eternal life is surprisingly not one that mentions heaven. This is his statement from John 17.3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And here's how I know that this is what John means is that he actually puts these words into Jesus' mouth. It's Jesus' prayer for us that we would have an eternal kind of life now, that the physical and the spiritual would meet in the tension of suffering and goodness and power and presence, and that something would grow there. Something would grow there. One of my favorite authors is Dallas Willard. And he says that we, we, we confuse the gospel, the good news. And he says oftentimes it's reflected in how the world talks about the church because they think about it as a ticket into heaven. And they're offended by those things. And he, his quote is, is that we need to talk about the kind of life that Jesus offers us as being eternal in quality and never ending in quantity. Eternal in quality, never ending in quantity. And so often I think we're like clinging to that quantity part in the hopes that we'll make it to something better. And we're missing that there is an eternal quality to life in the midst of the tension. How do do I know this? How do I know that they mean in the midst of the tension? I think when you look at Jesus um, weeping over the death of his friend Lazarus we know that he knows about that tension because Martha Lazarus' brother walks up and says if you'd been here earlier you could have re- you could have healed him and he would be still alive Jesus actually knows in that situation that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead but he still grieves He still weeps. He's still sad for his friend and for those around him. I think there's an eternal quality to the life that Jesus lived in those moments that's more important for us to catch and to understand and pursue than necessarily the the miracle that confirms that the kind of life that he was living when he was crying and weeping with his friends is the eternal kind of life. I think the miracle confirms that the way that Jesus was living, the way that he handled the moments of tension and walked into them and offered people hope and peace is what is really being offered. I think it's confirmation of that. And this is what Jesus does for his own disciples in this moment from John 6. After this teaching, many of his disciples turned back. The likes and the follows all went away. Because the tension and the challenges of life came, and people said, this is too hard. I don't understand how God can be good in the midst of this moment. I don't understand how you can be personally present and powerful. And so they walked away to handle it on their own. And Jesus Jesus is super awkward Because as most of the crowd leaves, he then turns to the 12 disciples left behind. And he says, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? I find a lot of hope in that question. I find a lot of hope in that question because I think it's the honest thing that in most of our relationships we normally don't say. Um... I'm not saying that you ever have you know conflicts with your your spouses, but some people do, and I do at times. And there's those moments. I remember one of our first big fights early in marriage, where it was like we both realized and said out loud, like if we weren't married right now, we would break up. Like that that would be like easier. Like that's that's the thing, and that's and that's the thing that you don't normally say. Like you just kind of sit with it and we are like, man, is there any way out of this situation? If it was different, I'd be out. Like, and you're looking for the way out, but you can't say it out loud because we don't we're not that honest with each other. And honestly, if we were that honest, we'd probably like blast each other with it as opposed to like asking an honest question. But Jesus is so skillful that he can look on us with love and ask that honest question and say, hey, I recognize that this moment is pregnant with a lot of tension. And so do you want to leave too? And I love that, that the disciples get the gift of being present with that question. Because in those pivotal moments, when the tension, the hesitations, the doubts, all collide together, that we each are making that own decision. The rich young ruler made his decision. He walked away. The bleeding woman made her decision. She'd already gotten the healing that she needed. She could just keep failing back into the crowd and not respond. But instead, she decided, I want everything that Jesus has to offer me in this moment. And so with fear and trembling, she became came before him in the crowd and said, Here I am. And he was able to restore her. Same thing in this moment with the disciples. The crowds have gone, they can't believe it anymore. And Jesus turns to them and says, do you want to go too? And here's here's Peter's response. And Peter is often used sort of as a representative of all the disciples. And so we can very easily put ourselves into Peter's shoes. And this is Peter's response. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And I don't, I don't know what, what, what this question means. We can't know the emotions behind this question. But I, I can read it two different ways. One way is that I can read it confidently. I can read it confidently that over time, Peter has seen Jesus live in a certain way, that he is confident and he's saying, God, there's Jesus, there's no one else. Who else would we go to? There's no one else. We're staying with you. You're the one that has the words of life. I can also very much read it with some desperation. I can read it with the desperation of I've left my job I've left my family I've left my town I am all in on this thing I am out on a limb Jesus to whom else shall I go? I think Peter believes it but whether or not he's confident or desperate in his who else shall we go to? I think is open for us to be honest about, and I'm I'm not projecting onto him. I'm just saying I've been in that place myself, and that that my prayer to Jesus has been, Lord, there's no one else I'm going to. I am going your way, and it's been confident. And then there's been other times where it's been, Jesus, I'm out on a freaking limb. I didn't say freaking, by the way. Um, I'm out on a limb, and I'm in trouble. I I want you to have the words of life. I've seen it. I've walked it. This is painful. This 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 is difficult. And I don't know which way I'm going, but I'm out on the limb. I'm following you. This is where I'm headed. And I think we will come to those pivotal moments where we have to answer the question for ourselves, to whom shall we go for the words of life? I want to offer some grounding hope for where the words of life are and just being reminded of one other thing. I, I mentioned that Dallas Willard is one of my favorite authors. And uh, he he's a philosopher and teacher and um, and a very just uh, gentle man. Um, I think about uh, one time that I met him. He's, he's a relatively famous author, so there's like a long line of people waiting in line to meet him. And my friend Adam is in front of me in line. And Adam gets to the front of the line, and he's, he's a college student, and um, Dallas is a professor at USC. And Dallas said in one of his talks that he says a prayer over his freshman class every year um, as a blessing to them, that they would um, get the most out of their time in college. And Adam, Adam asked Dallas, Dallas, would you pray that prayer for me? And so Dallas holds his hand and says a brief prayer, and, and then Adam goes to pull his hand out of Dallas's hands. And Dallas says, wait, where are you going? And Adam's like, well, there's this whole line of people here waiting to talk to you. Like, I, I was, I, you did what I asked. He's like, is there anything else that you need? And he just held his hand for like a few seconds. And I remember watching that, and I just, this, this is the kind of thing that to me embodies Jesus recognizing the tension and pregnancy of those moments there really wasn't much that Adam needed other than like him to acknowledge it like and just say, don't rush on from this. Just be with this for a second. Be in it. Don't be pushed by all these other people behind. I've prayed for you. Take it. like, Go. And, and, and the thing is that I think that the Bible describes the kind of life that's possible for us. And this is the quote that reminds me about that, is that to be a biblical Christian is not to have high views of the Bible. It is to seek and know and live the life that is depicted in the Bible. It is to seek, to know, and to live the life that's depicted in the Bible, which is ultimately manifest in Jesus himself living the perfect life. But the scriptures are full of stories that tell our story. They're the very things that people point at the scriptures and say, the the scriptures are racist, they're homophobic, they're sexist. They have all these terrible things in it. How can I possibly believe these things? Well, the reason you can believe them is because that's how the world is. It's describing the world. That's how the world is. And the story of the Bible is how God enters into that tension and that brokenness. And draws people to himself. And says that there's a better way to live than being racist, sexist, or homophobic. There's a better way to live to treat women differently. Follow me on that journey. And it takes humans centuries and thousands of years to learn from God and how to do that. And he is supremely patient. Supremely patient. And he looks at us with love and he takes us in our moment of tension, our hesitation, our addiction, our pain. And he says, walk with me a while. Walk with me a while and live this different kind of life with me. That's the direction he wants to take us. And I want to encourage you to continue to search the scriptures to see how people go on that journey. How they go on, like Peter. Peter starts... Um, as a, a very like excited and, and committed guy Because Jesus is the Messiah But then the moment that he has to tell the truth That he's a follower of Jesus On the night that Jesus is arrested He says no three times He fails in that pivotal moment of tension He fails three times And yet Jesus restores him So here's the hope is that you might look at these pivotal moments of tension with some guilt and shame about ones in the past that you failed at. That's okay. That's okay. Peter failed too. He wants to restore you as well. And Peter learned. Peter learned. And later in the story, Peter is very focused on his own performance. He wants to hold it together and look like a good Christian. But he keeps, he keeps focusing on that and leaving other people out. He's leaving out people that don't have their life together. And so on multiple occasions, one time through a dream and one time through Paul rebuking him in front of the whole church, he says, you're you're off, man. You're excluding people who aren't your race, who aren't worshiping the way that you worship from the kingdom of God. This is all open to everyone. And Peter is shaped by Jesus' story. He's shaped by the life that's described in the Bible to open himself to loving all different types of people from all different kinds of backgrounds because God's offer of relationship and love and peace is for everyone. So in the past, you may have been that hard soil and the, the, it may have skipped off your heart. You may have had things choked out. You may have had things burned up. But it doesn't mean that you can't till that soil again and be soft to it again. Peter, That's Peter's story. There's story after story after story in the scriptures about people just like you and me that have gone through that journey and that are becoming more whole people, living an eternal kind of life now and forever. These are John's parting words at the end of his gospel, and so it's my prayer for us today. He says, Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's a lot of different stories that we could tell each other about Jesus and what he's done in our life. But the goal of those things is that we would trust and grow in those moments of tension, in dependence upon Jesus. He can transform those moments of hesitation, of doubt, of pain into moments of dependence because he's willing to walk into them and say, do you want to leave? Let's be honest. Where are you at? Are you desperate? Are you confident? Where are you? And then that way, you can have his kind of life now. Would you please stand so I can pray for you and then uh, the worship team is going to come up. Jesus, we can't know um, all of the points of tension or um, the different pivotal moments that might be here in this room. I think about the, the students from Wildwood and um, their reentry into the world after spending a week away with you and your creation and your word. Um, I think about those that have tension in their marriage or in their family those that are struggling with um, abuse or addiction we, we know uh, disease depression we know that all these pivotal moments and these, these tensions of life are present with us and there's a way that we can imagine you lovingly asking us in the crowd um, who touched me who touched me And to look us in the eyes and to love us and call us son. To call us daughter. And to restore us in the midst of that tension. Lord, my prayer for each person here is that they would hear that honest question and not run away from it. But respond wherever they're at. It's in desperation. It's in confidence. um, That these moments of desperation would be turned into moments of dependence on you. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.